Greetings, welcome to 2024, welcome to Under Consultation, the video game television retrospective podcast. It's a brave new world. Listen to this time-appropriate podcast and suffer. I am Ash Versus. It's me, Cliff Foster, aka The Amazing Cliff. Let's do this. Ah, it's finally here after months and months and months and months of us talking about doing this. We're here. It's 2.0. Oh, this this feels comfy. Oh, no more crap TV shows. Oh, oh, you say that, mate. You say that, mate. I've seen some of the stuff we've got coming up later in 2024. However, to start this year off with a bang, we've spent the majority of the past three years comfortable in the bosom of British television, predominantly Channel 4. But for this strange new era, we are going on a journey a long, long journey. We are going to Japan. It is January 2010 as we look at Game Center CX. Now, I know my intro video I did for January said 13th of January for the transmission date, but it was actually the 5th of January. I don't know why I made that mistake. Sue me. But top of the box office in Japan was Avatar. You Jake Sully? I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. You'll be making a difference. I became a Marine for the hardship. I told myself I can pass any test a man can pass. All I ever wanted was a single thing worth fighting for. Concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They've grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. And forget what team you're playing for. Strong prey on the weak. Nobody does a thing. You've got one hour. You knew this would happen? Look at first. Let's just notice. Same as everywhere else in the world. Pretty much everywhere loved James Cameron's Smurf apocalypse. Apart from me. (laughs) I have never seen Avatar. Never. Briefly, briefly, you were threatened with having to watch it for UCP Extra, but I took pity on you, having just put you through, like, Packland Christmas special, Noel's house party with Yuri Geller, and the 1975 Ghostbusters. Now... Quickly, Cliff, what was top of the video game charts here in the UK? It's like it's 2024, because at the top of the video game charts is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Meanwhile, in Japan, it was a PlayStation Portable (gasps) game that was top of the multi-format charts with Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. So one of the spin-off Kingdom Hearts games. Oh, that's really cool to see a PSP game. This is our first... PSP game ever on UCP. This is brilliant. And given how it kind of performed for the most part over here in the UK, it will probably be the last <laughs> until we revisit I, Game Center come CX. On, did, you must have had a PSP as well. I got mine on. Did, did you not? not? I got mine on day of no. release. 
and I, I mean my UMD collection was strong. I saw one of my favourite movie franchises for the first time on UMD, and that was Zombieland. Wait, franchise? It's two movies, It's, it's still a franchise. I'm, look, look, I'm, I'm longing for number three, so I'm saying it's going to be a franchise. <laughs> I do have my Vita. Aww. I haven't got a PSP yet, but I do have my Vita, and I think... Yeah, Sony biffed both of those to varying degrees. But they are still lovely. I love a handheld. Like, you know, we're going to go on to so many handhelds in this series. But, you know, I've got so many surrounding me. But the PSP, unfortunately, when I was living abroad, the little cartridge slot at the back, it broke the little what, metal arms that used to hold them, fold them down. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those consoles that I've wanted to get back into my collection for a very long time. Moving over to the music charts, what was number one in the UK, Cliff? It's Lady Gaga and Bad Romance. It took me a while to truly warm to Gaga, mm. and now I I do I will indulge in a bit of the Gaga every now and then. Yeah. And I mean this this track absolutely slapped, absolute banger. It was near universally acclaimed for the hook, for the chorus, for the lyrics. Uh, the video and the social commentary and the imagery present in that video. It topped the charts in more than 20 countries. It sold over 12 million copies worldwide. It became one of the best-selling singles of all time. And it was performed on various television shows, award ceremonies and the Super Bowl halftime show. When you make it big enough to be called upon to be part of the Super Bowl halftime show, particularly when you're not like a legacy act like McCartney, mm. you know, Madonna, The Who, that kind of thing. To be called to do that when you are still in the burgeoning years of your career, that's a hell of a thing because that shows that even the NFL mm. have heard of you, <laughs> you know, a bunch of boring <laughs> in suits. It was weird with Gaga because I just remember her... It was like before Gaga, after Gaga. She just appeared. I remember I went in the March of this year. We went. I went to Spain to Alabando de la Huerta, which is like a big uh, Spanish Easter festival with the burning of the sardina and all that jazz. And I went over there to pretty much go on the drink. And at this point, Gaga was absolutely everywhere. Gaga had invaded not just the UK, not just the English-speaking world, but the Spanish-speaking world as well. She she was literally the biggest star of the time, and it happened seemingly overnight. One thing that would have definitely helped that is how catchy her songs were. Yeah. And this song in particular was deemed the catchiest song in the world by the American Psychological Association, which uh, studies structural patterns, melodies, lyrics and hooks. She wrote a banger, it's still around to this day. Uh, Wasn't top of the charts in Japan. In Japan, it was a homegrown artist, uh, someone who went by the name Reiku. It was his debut single called Fly Away. Sadly, some of his follow-on singles and success was marred due to its um, proximity to the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami which occurred several days after the single's release. Oh, no. Basically, promotional events for the song were cancelled. Although his first number one, 
fly away. It shows the importance of radio play over sales because this topped the Billboard 100 in Japan despite disappointing sales. It topped the Hot 100 because of airplay. Yeah. Because it was attached to a TV drama called Taxmen. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to get it into circulation for the radios. And that's what pushed it all the way up. So, Game Center CX. Now, Cliff, before I sent you this episode, had you ever seen Game Center CX? It's one of those things that I've seen on the peripheral. So, I've seen uh, a scene arena on the peripheral several times, like in YouTube videos, like in bits, in shorts, but I hadn't ever seen an episode from start to finish. Now, I've, there's people part of our community that love this show, love this show, and I've always been told you need to watch it. But for some strange reason, I never have dived into it much. Game Center CX, first of all, happy belated 20th birthday to Game Center CX. Indeed, it, only, only a couple weeks ago of recording. Yeah, we are almost topical on this one. We've almost, we've we've almost hit the 20th anniversary <laughs> on the nose. But to find the origins of Game Center CX, you need to go all the way back to quarter one, 2003. And there was a show that ran for around two months on Fuji TV CS, a satellite television channel called Weekly Shonen Blank. And for Blank, that would be a different series or manga creator each week. Mm. It was kind of an interview format show, and it was looking to provide a look at the people behind the creations. It was for its relatively niche market and relatively small exposure being a paid satellite network, very favorably received. But they got to the end of that original run and the creators kind of sat there and went, well, what now? And they soon turned around to, well, what other niche or specialist subjects could be covered? And writer Kensaku Sake said, video games. It, it seemed the obvious choice because there's crossover with the existing audience. Plus, it may shock you to learn this clip. Video games are very big in Japan. What? No one's I ever know. said this. What? So they started to look into the idea. And Sake said to the producer, Suyoshi Khan, that he knew another writer that they could bring on board who loved games, was very knowledgeable, and most importantly, worked cheaply. <laughs> And that man's name was Masayuki Kibi. And I will say at this point, I know I'm getting some of these names wrong. And I've even written down the phonetic spellings to try and stop me getting them wrong. And you won't hear the amount of times I've tried some of these names. <laughs> so I will hold up my hands in ignorance and apologise now. But originally their plan was to have this show follow in the same format as Weekly Shonen. It was going to be an interview with different creators, different studios, because with Weekly Shonen, they'd found a format that worked. And for the first season, they did stick with that. The main part of the show would be an interview, feature or retrospective. And then the second part would be a gaming challenge, looking at a retro video game. Because one of the golden rules established early doors on Game Center CX is a console or a game, for the most part, had to be 20 years old before it could be considered for the show. That's cool. So it's only fairly recently that like the PS2 and the GameCube are up for consideration. It keeps it in that bubble of being retro. Because the thing is, is that 
like like when people say oh yeah i'm gonna play retro gamer and then they give up and then they start playing sort of more modern games on their channels yeah and their shows it just works out so much better it had, keeps that feel of the show so they had a prototype format based on their existing work who to front the show originally they looked at an actor called ichiro funokoshi who had actually fronted weekly shonen but fairly soon their focus turned to Shinya Arino, one half of a comedy duo known as Yoiko. Now, Arino was a otaku. He had a love for anime, a love for video games. But despite this, his casting was met with some criticism. And the criticism appeared early doors of production because his energy on set was incredibly different to what they'd worked with before. Whereas their prior host on Weekly Shonen would start each show with, like, energy and punch and welcome. Arino didn't. As an example, during that first season, they had the first segment, which was the retrospective. And most hosts, like, even if you and I were doing it, we would be, welcome to Game Center CX. We are stood outside Nintendo headquarters. Arino would be a bit more like, welcome to Game Center CX. We are stood outside of Nintendo. And he would just, the energy would drain away <laughs> as he got later into the word. And then he'd just go inside. And that would be it. Nowadays, this is just seen as his style. He's kind of very dry. And it's something that really permeates through this episode, which, you know, occurs seven years into the run. That first series, that was a completely different format, wasn't it? That they, they very much in that first series, they would go and interview uh, computer game developers and it was less about those retro challenges than it is let's say after series one so i think that's more them thinking on their feet go a feet going actually how do we make arena work how do we make his energy his sort of very much calmer more demeanor how do we add that energy and i think it always helps when you come onto this computer game challenge shows that he's not the best at computer games. <laughs> he's not. He's a fan, but he's not, ironically, a game master. The series debuted, and it got very little viewer feedback initially. So they continued. They didn't know if what they were doing was right, but they also didn't know if it was wrong. Unfortunately, the lack of viewer feedback and also his somewhat dry manner meant that they were kind of cooling on the idea of the show and Arena and just thought, let's just go back to making weekly shona but they got to the end of series one and the final challenge of the final episode was super mario brothers 2 now that is not super mario brothers usa that is what we know as the lost levels and that was the one where everything really clicked because the game is notoriously hard and then you take arena who is an average games player maybe sometimes depending on the games less than average <laughs> But he needed to strategize to try and beat this game. So out came a whiteboard. And not only did Arena strategize, but he involved others in the room. The <laughs> ADs, the cameraman, the writers. They worked together to come up with a strategy. Spoiler, they failed. <laughs> but it was the atmosphere that was created around that. So despite this series ending on a high, despite there being a real sense of achievement and coherence, the response from the audience was, well, nothing. There was nothing negative, but there was also nothing positive. And any content creator will tell you, apathy is the worst thing. Even if you get vitriol, even if someone messages you and goes, well, actually, and I'm sure already 
my pronunciations on this episode <laughs> will get me some well actuallys. At least it means people are listening and feel compelled to say something. Mm-hmm. But then the show re-ran on terrestrial television and people started to take notice. Now, it would be unfair to say that this terrestrial broadcast was responsible for Game Center continuing over going back to the manga base series. There was also the fact that during the Game Center CX production period, their original host had quite a career boost. So scheduling him to be involved in the production of another series and interview all these various creators wasn't going to happen. So they turned back to the red-headed gaming stepchild, dropped the studio focus segment and centered the entire series around the challenges that they would put Arena into. The show started to hit its stride here. New segments debuted to break up the main challenge. Arino's dry, low-energy style meshed with the rest of the production team who appeared more on camera as the show's dictated. And sometimes they would be producing stuff and they weren't sure if when he was talking, he was talking to himself, he was talking to them, if he was addressing the audience... (laughs) They would only know once they actually got to the editing bay and went, oh, wait, he is just talking to himself. Okay. (laughs) Let's break down the show we see here in Series 12. Mm. And the reason why I'm only going to go into Series 12 is, as of today, there have been over 50 segments to this show. Different themes, different flavors, different accessories that accompany the main challenge. We are definitely going to cover some of these episodes again in the future. I've already eyeing up four or five future potential candidates for different parts of the year. There are some great episodes to do. There are even episodes where they go to America, which I'm like, that's going to be that's gonna great. Be cool. But here we are, the 12th season, the first episode of 2010. And this show is essentially a precursor to Twitch. Back in 2003, Twitch did not exist. Long play videos didn't really exist of games, but that has been the focus of Game Center since about 2004, since Series 2 debuted. So you have Arino, who is presented with games by his producers, and the goal is to complete it within one day. He's supported by the assistance directors, referred to throughout as ADs, and sometimes other staff. This support can appear either via moral support or by actually helping him play the game. He and his staff were also featured in segments that go throughout the episode where he goes to local arcade centres as well as segments where he does a variety of things like interview games designers, showcase classic console hardware or games or like various made-up games and skits which the other staff participate in. Game Center CX, the title, is not just the name of the show. Mm. It's the name of a fictional company that exists within the games universe and Arena is an employee of that company. That is why he is wearing the kind of the pale blue jumpsuit with the logo on. It's a throwback uh, workman's outfit. Throughout the run of the show, he will be promoted or demoted, depending on how he's doing throughout the series. (laughs) His stature has gone up and down. So segments that are present in Series 12, the ones we're going to be focusing on. First of all, Arena's Challenge. Mm -hmm. This is the constant in Series 2. He sits down in a nondescript office or conference room There is a small TV, there is a classic console, there are a series of salty snacks. A lot of these snacks are sent in by fans. This is kind of the equivalent of fan mail. And also a supply of kind of ice 
bands yeah, that he these, sticks on his head to reduce tension. The cool strips. Because when he puts yeah. on those cool strips, I love it because everything I've seen from this is when he puts on the cool strips, he's taking the game very seriously. Like, extremely seriously. That is the point of him rolling up his sleeves. He will try and complete these games via any means necessary. If there's a warp, he'll take it. If there's a cheat code, he'll use it. If there are hint books, he will go through them. But only if he really needs to, and of course, if they're actually available. What I love about these segments as well is you feel like you're going on the journey with Arena. Is that that basis of that he is encountering this game for the first time. That's how it very much feels of this episode. He has never played this game ever before and he is encountering it for the first time. And he, where he talks to himself, he's analysing it. No matter who he's talking to, what he's doing is he's breaking down what he's got in front of him and he's trying to figure out what he's meant to be doing. And not all the time does he actually notice that the game itself is telling him what he should be doing as well. Because we have definitely a moment in this first challenge or the first level of this challenge where he just forgets the main concept of what he's meant to do after he defeats the Guardian. In fairness on that one, the game does not explain it very well. It's a line. (laughs) Yeah, having played the game in its English format, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. (laughs) But the crew is there, the mm. AD's there, the writers are there, the camera guy's there, and they aren't just there to document his progress. They are there to support him, to chastise him, to build him up, to assist, as we covered. It brings this real sense of kind of like a close-knit community together. I think it's one of those things that has in similarity with Twitch. Like, both you and I have played games on Twitch that we have been pretty fucking awful at. <laughs> Don't know what you mean. I'm great at Tetris. But that moment you get from your community when... You hit a milestone when you hit a goal. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling, and it's what you get here. One thing that definitely hopes is Arino is a comedian. And God knows some of these challenges would be impossible if he wasn't, because <laughs> he is literally repeating the same challenge over and over and over again. There is at least one level in this episode where he spends apparently at least an hour on it mm-hmm. and still can't get past it. The idea is to complete the game within the day or fail. The exact endpoint is variable, but it's usually make sure the staff can get the last train home. That's the main proviso. So it's not a case of, oh, midnight. It's a case of what day are we filming? When is the last train home? When do we need to end? Although in the case of this one, it's almost midnight. It's almost UCP Live 1, really. (laughs) (laughs) But breaking up the challenge on these near hour-long episodes, you have... Uh, game collections which is kind of a little snapshot in time mm-hmm. of different games released for different platforms within a set time period i think on today's episode it's april 1990 mm-hmm. you also have for this season only a waste of color which is where they look at a bag of game boy games and try and work out which of these should be remade in color I would argue they are stretching it with today's because at least one of them is fully compatible with the Game Boy Color. It seems like it's someone's actual collection. Yeah, it apparently is. It apparently, like, like, and as they went on, he had less and less games in that collection (laughs) because it's like, well, we've covered these. I think he had like maybe eight or nine left by the time we got to this point. Back up. One of the other very long-running segments that started in Series 2 and is still part of the show to this day is called you should visit this game center sometime Mm. which is writing suggestions from viewers to say to arino hey come and visit this game center 
come and visit this shop, this amusement centre, this batting range. They could have a mixture of old machines, new machines, kind of more amusement machines, other forms of activity. And it can swing between larger complexes like we see today to almost convenience stores that just have a handful, just a handful of arcade machines there for the young customers that come in. Having watched this episode and watched a bunch more over my time with Game Center, it would be lovely to do almost kind of like a, a tour of areas of Japan. Yes. Looking, looking for these places. I literally have my notes here is how far does the kitty stretch? Because it would be great to go and visit like these, especially the batting center one that he goes to today. But I think that's what you have in your head, don't you? That I've never been to Japan before. And I know that there's listeners that have, and we have a co-host that has as well. Um, but that's how I imagine Japan to be. That it's just got these amazing areas and amazing sort of little arcades just completely out of nowhere. This is not far away from the train station. It seems to be above a load of other buildings as well. But I think with those segments, there's that sort of element of that's Japan. It, it makes it out and about. You know, we talk about the Games Master episodes when they get out and about. But that's what breaks down this episode as well. And yeah... Can we go, please? If we get decent sponsorship or, <laughs> you know, 2.0 really does take off in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. Sure. Why not? <laughs> now, obviously, Game Center CX is a very Japanese show. Mm. The most Japanese show we will probably ever cover. How do we see it? How is it available to us? Well, for the most part, the answer is fan translations. Uh, it started with a group called TV Nihon who, if you've ever watched fans subtitled Ultraman, uh, Kamen Rider, Sentai series, they will be subtitled by that group. And they started, actually, with related content. There were two Ultraman-based episodes that they did, and then they went back and did more episodes. They went back and did the challenge segments of the first season, then translated the full episodes of the second season. But the releases slowed down, and then there was a gap of like six months between releasing episode. And then there was a gap of a year before another episode showed up. Meanwhile in Japan, a DVD publisher called Style Jam produced two English language episodes called Mystery of Atlantis and Ghosts and Goblins. And they used that to try and sell Game Center to an overseas market. Mm -hmm. There was no success. And as far as it's known, those episodes have only been seen publicly once at a film festival in New York in 2007. Now, stepping up to the plate is the Something Awful team, who have been an amazing source of translated episodes. And also this information that I've just used on the history of English language Game Center CX has come from a Something Awful threat. Something Awful as a website is a complex history. I'm not going to touch it here. I used to be a regular on Something Awful way, way back when, like... I mean, literally 20 years ago, you know, I, but I, I moved on, I left, not under a cloud or anything. I just, other things in life had to take over. But a team of something awful goons stepped up and started translating. Most of them had never had any experience in producing fan subtitled products before. Mm -hmm. But they went at it a gusto, not only translating new episodes, but filling in the blanks on older episodes. There was another translation group called Clover, which also contained a high number of something awful regulars. But they started to put these releases out and get them out in all the usual places. And actually, they're still releasing them to this day, although the pool of subtitling teams 
doing the work has broadened quite considerably. So they've been working at this for a couple of months. And then Gorka Media, who owned at the time Kotaku, Gizmodo, io9 and others, announced that they had acquired a dozen or so episodes of Game Center CX, and they'd be doing a dub of them and hosting them on Kotaku. Now, Gorka Media, you may know from those other sites, you may also know them as a company that had to declare bankruptcy after they were sued for releasing the Hulk Hogan sex tape. Just give us something, Hulk. This morning, an absolute victory for Hulk Hogan in his invasion of privacy battle against Gawker. The jury siding with the former wrestler on all counts, awarding him $115 million. Finding against Gawker, its founder Nick Denton and former editor-in-chief A.J. Delario for posting a secretly recorded tape of Hogan having sex. Cliff, be thankful we are not doing the Hulk Hogan sex tape as a UCP extra. I love it how these notes take us down very big rabbit holes. I never saw that one coming. <laughs> not only would the episodes be dubbed, they would also be rebranded as Retro Game Master. Not Games Master, they weren't that daft. <laughs> Retro Game Master. Now, this created a period of confusion, and it's one I'm actually familiar with, not so much from the Game Center CX and Something Awful site, but from another project that I used to have connections with called DAP Central. DAP Central used to be the main place you could find episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm. Now, there weren't a huge amount of official releases of MST3K episodes coming out for quite a while. But then Rhino in America started putting out DVD box sets and that also then became part of Shout Factory. And the kind of code of honor they operated under was if an episode was released as a box set or a DVD, that MST3K episode would be removed from circulation. And the same rules applied to Retro Game Master and Kotaku and everything else. So they were allowed to continue to post their translation work as long as they did not post licensed episodes fan subtitling always exists in a gray area and it's one of the greatest contentions for anybody mm. that likes to watch like i'm a big carmen rider fan i'm a big sentai fan i love those shows there are some legally available box sets being released by ironically shout factory but quite a small number compared to like 50 years worth of shows yeah and this was like a dozen episodes of game center I'm all for legally obtaining media where you can. But what do you do if you can't, or if the only media you could obtain had no way for you to actually understand what's going on? I can't see there being a problem with anything like that. Is because, as you, as you said, there's so many franchises, so many properties that would be lovely to be more accessible to, uh, let alone translations, yet you know these silly licensing agreements can get in the way of products that we're never going to see it shouldn't be as hard as it is to see shows like game center mm -hmm. cx nowadays uh, the license gorka had by the way was like a very short-term license it was actually picked up by discotech media who released a box set that box set not only contained the episodes licensed by gorka but contained a new translation which had been provided by one of the Something Awful translation team. Oh, really? Nowadays, if you go on the various sites and the various whatnots around there on the internet, you will find most releases are either tagged as coming from the Something Awful team uh, or Location Scouts or Goose Spectre. Uh, it, it kind of 
flows around between them. And if you check the Something Awful Game Center CX Twitter account, they're not proud. They will also post, you know, oh, this episode has now gone up from this release team. This episode has now gone up from this release team. There were some amazing episodes that have come out recently. Cliff, there's an episode on Night Trap. No. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, we need to, I need to watch that. That's going to be epic. I have seen the list. Like, I went down all, like, 27 bloody series. And there's... I even saw, because they're up on the website, it shows you what episodes are coming as well. So, because that we're in between. We're, like, in the middle of a series of uh, Game Center CX. And, oh, I tell you what, there's some episodes that I was like, right, Pencil, you in, you in, you in. Oh, that's Night Trap I didn't see, though need to find that one now i'm not going to include in the show notes any links to torrent sites i've no desire to dabble in that but what i will include are links to the game center cx episode guides Mm -hmm. uh the subtitling group site and also a few repositories on archive.org because they are the lowest risk ways you can have of seeing this show And I do recommend you go and you check out this episode. You check out other episodes. You just scroll down Mm -hmm. until you see a game that you want to see a dry Japanese office worker in a conference room try and complete in a single day. And also with YouTube in recent years, only in 2022, they created their own YouTube channel. And it's, it's just achieved only in the last couple of weeks. Yet again, we're topical because on the 17th of November, they achieved the award for 100,000 of subscribers. And I did go and subscribe to it. And there's some exclusive content from the channel on there. I believe none of it is translated. However, if you do want those little added extras from the official place, go and check that out as well. Support it. The more you support it, the more that they see a Western audience is watching maybe they will do something themselves. Genuinely, with the amount of episodes that exist of Game Center CX, we're talking in excess of 350. If they launched their own kind of like on-demand service, I'd, I'd sign up I, for it. I would. I know I know people say, oh, too many streaming services, but hey, this is a niche one. Mm. I don't expect this to appear on your crunchy rolls <laughs> or whatever. That's 350 episodes at 60 minutes an episode. Get in touch with the fan subtitling group. Get in touch with the goons. Use their subtitles. Reimburse them, hopefully, if you're not going to be a dick about it. Although the TV station itself is quite cheap, so they probably wouldn't. (laughs) But it would just be really cool to see something done official, long form, not just a failed attempt to bring the show over independently, followed by some redubbed and rebranded episodes. Yeah, because I don't think it's that element that it needs... uh a channel it doesn't need to you just need to put it out on as i said they've got their own youtube channel now you can you can literally do a chat a a show just a batch do season by season do it as you know per year they redo another season you could i reckon there's a following for that and i reckon they could get some views there is so much more that we could cover with game center cx i mean we've been recording now for three quarters of an hour (laughs) and we could go for another hour they've had their own video games which is somewhat Mm. weird and meta yes they've had a theatrical film they've had live shows they've had spin-offs they've had nintendo eShop exclusive series some of which have been found and archived and translated there's even been an action figure of arena you know that is that is how awesome that is cliff the first time in 2024 shall we get into the show let's do this 
するな今年課長<笑>右で120キロにしました当たんのかドラゴンドラゴンはい草野球ちゃうねや They planned on having him play this in the year 2020. Game Center CX opens, as is tradition, with a member of the otherworldly royal family walking on and speaking to us via text box, as is appropriate for a character that looks like it stumbled straight out of Dragon Quest. <laughs> you either get the king, the queen, or the prince, and I believe this is the king. They will appear throughout the show. They will either praise him or scold him, depending on how much. He is sucking. This king scolds him through the whole entire this ep- entirety of this episode. This king does not approve. <laughs> But following that, Game Center CX begins in the traditional way with probably one of my favorite title sequences of any show we have ever covered or we will ever cover. You know exactly what you're getting with this little title sequence. Japanese kids running around、mm-hmm. and they've got the, the, the classic Famicom there.、Yeah. And they're blowing into the cartridge, even though we now know that that is a false equivalency and you actually really, really shouldn't do it. Yeah, it's about to say. Even I even use it on my other channel as a name for, the,、uh, for my subscribers. But it makes no difference whatsoever. Isn't that kind of a backhanded compliment? <laughs> it's something you really shouldn't do and you call your subscribers that. <laughs> I loved it because when I first set up the channel, I would just get those, ah, I think you're fine. And that's what I got from the whole N64 community. Ah, I think you're fine. And that encouraged me to do it more and more until the point of that every single episode I've ever done, I've introduced it as Hello, all you cartridge blowers out there. <laughs> Not that I'm salty towards people that are a bit like, a, Ah, I think you're fine. However, does amuse me. <laughs> But coming up on this week's episode, we've got Street Fighter 2010, a batting cage arcade trip. And Game Boy games on the Super Game Boy. Even though the Game Boy player also existed by this point, their commitment to the 20 year rule is still standing strong. And we get our cardboard cutout of Arino san saying, despite it being 2010, he's going to give it his never give up spirit. I think, because this is my first ever watching these episodes in full, and that is. The definition of him. He does not give He does not give up. How many times have you streamed for two and a half hours on a game? And by the end of it, you're like, I, I want this to stop. I'm not very good at this. Or even you, it, halfway through the stream, you're going, I better change the game. This guy does it for like 12 hours. 12 hours. He starts about 10 o'clock in the morning and goes on usually to 11 o'clock in the evening. It's absolutely bonkers how he just assists with these bloody games. Quake 2 64 remastered. That fing game.、Oh. Especially because,、yeah. as is with always with these games, I constantly forget there's a quick save and the quick load. Because that's not how I played it growing up. Also, it doesn't help that one dickhead said do it on nightmare mode, but hey ho. <laughs> that dickhead. Now, to be fair,、me. the true dickhead is me because I listen to that other dickhead. Pocket got a bend here. Oh, he's in you, yeah. 何これ2015みたいなこと2010ストリートファイター So in this episode we start because it is 2010 That means that we need a fresh new challenge And that fresh new challenge is Street Fighter 2010 Yes, delivered fresh from the AD's pocket <laughs> AD Emoto there 
who was with us for season 11 and 12. Considered one of the most highly capable ADs. Uh, he was very good at helping Arena with various challenges. Although he offered to be Arena's second in a punch-out challenge, but actually ended up having to give the pad back to Arena. <laughs> Because he's not as good as what Reno was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think later on, I think he's so natural. Like how he comes on the screen, he sort of pulls the game out of his pocket and introduces it. I think that sort of resonates with the audience as well. Because later on, we see him get completely thrown aback when when an owner of an arcade was like, yeah, yeah, I, I can you sign this as well to a moto? And it was like, oh, <laughs> and I really like him throughout this episode. But apparently Arena has also been into Super Mario Brothers 3 <laughs> in recent times. And boy, howdy, is this a big departure. Well, I was about to say, now, is that a joke? Because he says it and everyone laughs. So I was a bit like, is this an internal joke that he was really shit at Super Mario Brothers 3? <laughs> I mean, he's definitely had issues with Mario games okay. in general. I mean, if you remember that first challenge that really kind of gave them the, the glue, the magic formula that would help them build Game Center for the future was Mario Brothers 2. But Street Fighter 2010, the final fight, because if you're going to chuck one Capcom <laughs> franchise in there, Let's throw them chuck over. another Capcom franchise in there. Mike Hagar could be used in this game. So, as you said, it was published and developed by Capcom, uh, coming out in September and August in uh, the North America and Japan, respectively, in 1990. Uh, it, it's a spin-off of the uh, the Street Fighter universe with our protagonist, Kevin. Or Kev. Well, the, this is it. The backstories. The backstory of Kevin. I'm a terrible f***ing hero name. Kevin. The, the backstory of Kevin is, is the backstory of Ken. There is a lot of confusion about this game because a lot of people will believe that, oh, it was this Japanese game and the Street Fighter branding and the all that stuff happened because of Capcom USA. However, as people have actually dug down into the code of Street Fighter 2010... They have discovered that it appears the English language version of Street Fighter 2010 existed before the Japanese version. So you had Street Fighter 2010 with Ken, but then changed into Kevin for the Japanese version with all the various other translations and changes. The addition to the title that was made by Capcom USA was The Final Fight. Which makes more sense because if you have a look at the setting, it's in a the futuristic world of 2010. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, Kevin's got like cyber enhancements and stuff like that. So if you actually look at him, he doesn't really look like Ken. Even though we hadn't had Street Fighter 2 yet, it was still the original arcade Street Fighter game that came out. Uh, it still didn't look like that version of Ken. Apart from he was a former martial arts champion. I suppose that's... And he was blonde. He, and he was blonde, yes. But <laughs> as a game itself, I think that it, it very much doesn't follow either Final Fight or Street Fighter, so it's not a it's not a beat 'em up. It very much follows its own course, its own strategy. Because what is different about this game is that you have to obtain energy and then defeat a certain guardian boss that sort of comes in at different times and different ways in the game. So it's one of those things of that it doesn't really tell you as the game goes on how many you have to defeat or 
where they're going to come from because the first one it sort of just comes off screen there's other ones where you kill one but then realize oh no i've got to kill multiple of these but you have to collect your energy you have to defeat the baddies uh get power-ups throughout the level um, and then you have to escape and fade in to the uh to the background to the little sort of energy door that appears i briefly entertained the notion of doing a Let's Play of Street Fighter 2010 throughout <laughs> January on the Twitch channel. As a companion piece to this episode, I played about two and a half hours playing this How did you get on? on the train. And after two and a half <laughs> hours, I decided, no. Did you get as far as Arena? Not even close. Oh, no. I mean, part of it is because I was playing it on my Ambernick kind of little handheld. Mm-hmm. And the controls on that are great for something, but it wasn't great for this. The D-pad was a little bit too creaky. I, I will hold up my hands. I couldn't gel with this game. I mean, admittedly, I was on a moving train. Maybe if I was sat here playing it with the controller in my hands and the TV there, maybe that would be different. Maybe I'll give it a go. But I was just playing the game going, I wish I was doing better at this. But even having watched Areno play this, even knowing how he completed certain levels, I was just really struggling with it. And it didn't matter whether I played the Japanese or the English version. I played both. And I'm like, yep. I suck equally at both of them. I don't know if it's sucking at them because if you, when we go through this game into different areas and when Areno has to uh, go through these levels, I think that there's a, definitely a problem with the collision detection. Like, there's there's definitely a problem. Like, it sometimes doesn't even touch these baddies, these because um, you've got the smaller baddies as well as the bigger baddies that are going along. And sometimes he doesn't even touch them, but they seem to cause damage to him. So I don't know if it's necessarily just the player. I think it... Not to give you the excuse of why you were crap, but I think it might be the game as well. I I appreciate that you're not trying to give me the excuse, and let's be honest, I won't take it. it. There are some games I am good at. This is not one of Mm. them. Like, give me a final fight. I'm fine with it. Give me pretty much any of the other Street Fighter games, and I'm at least passable. Mm -hmm. This game is just really, really tough. However, I would like to say that throughout this episode and my own experience with the game, for a NES game, this game looks really good. Like, the the sprite work is really, really nice. Yeah. The background, the music. Banging soundtrack. Oh, God, yeah. As soon as I heard one of those pieces of music, I was like, I'm using that as background music both for this episode mm-hmm. and for the January 2024 trailer I put together. Yep. I may keep that music for other use in the future. It proper slaps. Mm-hmm. Game Center CX Chief On. I love the way he introduces himself when he does that. And no sooner does he start this game than he's immediately questioning why are the numbers so skewed? (laughs) It's a valid question. This is like when you're playing around with perspective in Photoshop and you just take it a bit too far. Yeah, yeah. We get the brief introduction cinematic, the plot of which is mostly similar between the English and Japanese versions. Kill the parasites, gain power to open an interdimensional door, but you only have 10 seconds to do so or your body will disappear. This is the bit that does cause some problems and confusion because what does your body will disappear actually mean? (laughs) Turns out they mean you die. I did not fully understand this the first time I saw this, And I'm glad I saw someone else play it before I really started trying to sit down and play Street Fighter 2010, which I know is a game that I played before. 
but I think I probably gave up on it fairly quickly mm-hmm. as well. So you have the first round. When we watched through of our watch, uh, the sort of link that we had to watch through of it, we didn't get the the baddie's name or the uh, guardian's name until literally just as the game was starting or they would appear. So I put my own little description of what they look like. So I put Kevin versus Flying Scorpion, matey. <laughs> Whereas actually, to allow Tony Schiavone to introduce him... It's Sting! Sting! Or Red Sting. It's Red Sting. <laughs> it's Red Sting. So that Wolf means pack. he's part of the NW. Target no Red Sting so this is why this game's gameplay is quite confusing because actually you've only just started the level and the boss is already mm. there but also so are the various other enemies mm-hmm. and you're also still at base power levels this is why this game is so nails because you're having to defend yourself from kind of regular grunts you're trying to collect power-ups but also you're dodging red sting who is a proper mm-hmm. with the little grunts as soon as you defeat them another one comes flying on so they're automatically replaced and they'll come on and they're literally just gun home just come straight at you and as you said you've got to defend yourself you've got to beat the blocks you've got to get the power-ups which means that poor reno dies a lot <laughs> like a lot as he tries to as i said this is this makes it feel like this is the first time he's ever played this game because he's trying to dissect what he's meant to do and originally he's not getting any of the power-ups none of them whatsoever and it's and it's got the i do know i do know what i'd really like this part of it as well is that you've got the narrator that's telling you what the power-ups are what they do um and it's sort of like explaining to you as arena's learning as well so you're learning as well as him learning how to defeat this game despite the fact that with every life you kind of edges a bit further on it's not long before we see game over and the end of his first continue <laughs> yeah this is my experience of this game <laughs> i don't know if i will get along with this game if when i do give it a go because i will give it a go because the controls seem very they seem very mega man in the way that kevin doesn't seem to be able to duck and if he's standing straight he just punches forward and to get him to punch in any other direction Seems like a chore. The controls were a bit Mega Man. The controls were also a little bit Bionic Commando. Maybe a little bit Castlevania in some bits. It's an odd game control-wise. I wouldn't call it any one thing or another. It's unique. That could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. With this game, it's kind of both. (laughs) (laughs) Arena doesn't get this game (laughs) He literally says it (laughs) And just then sits there and wonders Whatever happened to Dal Sim? I've I've been questioning this The whole entire way Like your brain tries to do it Like you're trying to figure out how this fits Into that Street Fighter universe (laughs) And he's asked that question Where is he? Well, I mean, if you want to look at the purely logical meaning of this, Dalsim didn't exist at this point because this was post-Street Fighter 1, but pre-Street Fighter 2. In Street Fighter universe terms, I don't know, wherever he ends up at the end of Street Fighter 6. Like, if we look at him in the Street Fighter canon of where Street Fighter 2 took place and where the Alpha series sits, because, dear Christ, that stuff gets confusing. (laughs) 
I think he's unlocked Cammy's mind, has already taken on Shadaloo a bit, but has also been raising money to save his village. So he's busy, is basically the answer. He's got a lot on his plate. However, even though we're trying to say, how is this like Street Fighter 2? The narrator quickly tells us, it's nothing like Street Fighter 2, because this isn't a good game. And so it's already sort of, it's not doing this to sell any cartridges. This is, honestly, let's go and test out this computer game. But slowly but surely, Arino gets the hang of the controls and gets the hang of the difficulty cliff. And for some reason, automatically, I capitalise the C on the word cliff. <laughs> I was about to say, is that a statement towards me or is that a statement that was a difficulty cliff? <laughs> cliff, you are a difficulty cliff difficulty. <laughs> so he's changed his tact and he's like, right, maybe I have to look for these power-ups. And soon afterwards, defeats... And he ends up just standing there and going, wait, I've defeated him. Why am I not moving on? And there's like a countdown going on at the bottom corner of his life to 10 seconds. He's like, where am I meant to go? Where am I meant to go? But you remember about that bit in the preamble that told us that his body will disappear after 10 seconds. Yeah. Unfortunately, Reno didn't. <laughs> he really didn't. So then he's left to it and he's, he goes and completes the level pretty quick after that. Well, it makes it assume that he does it because he's got the gist of it. And this time he learns where the escape is. And we get this first part of this. And I'm hoping that this is going to be in every single episode I ever watch this TV show. That's it. The little fist bump into the air And it's just the joy on his face And I'm like Every time that he gets this point You start cheering him on And at this point I'm invested I'm invested in this guy That I've just grown an emotional attachment to For a little fist bump I'm like go on go on And literally I'm screaming Uh, My first ever watch through of this I'm actually screaming for a Reno I'm hoping he does it So we're on to stage one, two. It's Kevin versus Scott. No, sorry, not Scott Norton. (laughs) It's Kevin versus Brian. (laughs) F*** him up, Kevin. (laughs) Kevin dies. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, straight away. And it's it's weird because I put Dogface something. Dogface Gremlin. No, (laughs) Dogface. So Rick Steiner. Rick Steiner. (laughs) So I put Dogface Gremlin as his name. And he's got like this mace that's like a hook shot. So it's like, yeah. it sort of comes out, but he can use it to grapple onto things. But he uses it just to fire into Kevin's face. And it's in a weird little arena area or theater area, as Arena might is saying, oh, hang on, I've got an audience. Because in the background, you've got like these people cheering them on. And a random pinball machine in the far left of the screen. But the problem is, is he figured out in the last level, he needed power-ups. There's no power-ups in this level. And I think that's what throws him off to uh, to begin with. <laughs> Amazingly, despite the lack of power-ups, at least in the edit of the show, he 
manages to get this guy with relative ease. Certainly, I think he's realised that this game is just going to be unfair, so just mm-hmm. work with it. Then we're on to stage one, three, and things mix up again. This is a forced scrolling stage, and he promptly dies. <laughs> because this is also an auto-scroller with dead ends that will result in you being crushed to death. Also bottomless pits. And eventually you end up on a disco dance floor. And his next opponent, who is called... Andro Boy. Or as I put mine, Big, Big Robo Arm Man. <laughs> but Cliff, guess what? What, Ash? Kevin dies. Oh, again. Again. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> And it seems like after he gets this, and it is gutting because basically what happens is, is the Andro boy just grabs these falling boxes, these boxes that start to appear, and he starts lugging them at Kev, lugging them at his face. But at this point, it does seem that when Arino goes back, unfortunately, he's hit another continue. So he goes all the way back to the beginning of that level. And it seems by the editing, it took him a while to get back to the disco dancing scene. So it's like he keeps battling his way forward. And it's during this level that Arino has a chilling thought. (laughs) (laughs) Sound, the style of the game. It's like Ninja Gaiden. Described in this episode as an abominable, extremely difficult game, (laughs) which is an entirely accurate description of any Ninja Gaiden game. Completely. It's the fear in his eyes as he says it. But as Kevin continues to die and die and die, (laughs) we go to commercials with the question posed, will he be able to clear this game? ミジマルクレミルダルバッカタムラマエバデボゾロアクダンゴロヤラップゼブライカオブホイがヒヤポカブチョロネコツタジャマラカチココロモリハホコモリメグロコエモンガママンボミネズミコロモリテッシードクマ
that as i said I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the coffers will stretch one day to a trip to japan because i had a look where the batting center is and i wanted to still see if the batting center was still there and it is it's in shinjuku tokyo and it's about a five minute walk away from the ikebukuru uh, train station and I had a look on TripAdvisor to see what people are saying about this batting centre. So it's had 57 reviews and not a single one of them are lower than average. Every single one is three stars or above. That is a good side. That is a good side as soon as we walk into this. I mean, Google reviews can be absolute <laughs> so definitely. Because I literally came into this going, I'm going to read out the best one and I'm going to read out the worst one. And every single one of them, I just like, it was a nice day out. And I was like, oh, I was expecting to see something terrible here. But no, everywhere we're saying it's lovely. And as we get into this batting centre, I tell you what, it's not just retro because of the consoles. It's retro because of how they record you in this batting centre. Because when you go to these batting centres, when you go up to the plate, it will record you and you can watch yourself back. So you can have a look at your form and see how you are swinging on VHS. I love that touch that that there are still places out there that are doing things not digital. Even Arena is shocked by it. He's like, it's been a while since I've seen one of these. The hell is this? That was 13 years ago he was shocked by it. (laughs) I mean, I had a DVD recorder like 2004, 2005-ish, something like that with an HDD in. So, yeah, I still had a VCR about, but it was mainly for, like, transferring an archive and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's located on a building rooftop, as a lot of batting centres are. It's got 48 arcade games, most of which focus on full-body experience games, a.k.a. you have to t- things or catch things or throw things. And as you mentioned, there's the in the batting centre, they can also record your form on classy VHS tape. I don't know if you have to bring your own tape or if they provide one. I didn't look that deep into it. <laughs> it would be cool if you could just bring your own and then you could take it home and just like kind of back and to the left, <laughs> back to the left. Well, in Japan, baseball is an absolutely huge sport. It's one of the top sports in the country. They have their big old league, which is the Nippon League, that's separated into a Pacific League and a, a Pacific League and a Central League. But it's inspired so many Japanese computer games. So, for instance, there's lots of N64 games that were Japanese exclusive but they were solely baseball games. There's a whole series, uh, Yiku Power Pro uh, Yaku, which is the the sort of very cartoony uh, yeah, baseball. yeah, the chibi style. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that is huge over there. Like, baseball is massive. You know, even with the Wii and later on in life, that we will see that Wii Sports, one of the biggest games on there, is baseball. It is a huge, huge sport over there. So you can see why people want to go to these batting areas. Obviously, being in a very metropolitan city, there's not going to be much in the way of expansive fields that you can practice. This is the only way that, apart from if you are part of a club that you will be able to practice and improve your form is to go to these little batting centers so yes it is cool as a retro gamer and a retro arcade player but at the same time this these sort of areas will be taken very seriously like where we would get in the uk i suppose uh driving courses where people will go and test their you know going off for golf in cities and things on those lines i think this is very much where this is taken very seriously wow. 
気の利いた一言入れなあかんのかな100円1ゲームとか書かなあかんのかな Well, speaking of taking things seriously, the chief is looking around and seeing all the autographs proudly displayed on the wall. He sees that the Ungols have gained there, so does actor Mayo Kawasaki. And the chief wonders if they were to ask for his autograph, would he be able to think up such thoughtful words as those displayed? Maybe he'll just go with 100 yen per game. I think that's wishful thinking. I don't think that's, those batting games cost 100 yen. <laughs> But moving on to the arcade games, he doesn't stop at Fist of the North Star, which somewhat annoys me. I do love those Fist of the North Star games. Instead, he decides to try Grab and Toss, a game by Komaya. So it's a game where you sort of put your hands in the middle and you're trying to catch these ping pong balls and then lug them into the pink's, pig's mouth. And it's, it's really funny because he's, he's putting his arm in and he's trying to do it. And I, I think to myself, It can't be that hard to grab those balls because he seems to be missing them all of the time. But I, I suppose it's one of those things, unless you play it, you won't know. I think it's a combination of relative age, height, arm length, and lack of coordination. <laughs> also, there is a little shelf just inside the hole you reach inside, which stops you dipping your arm down too far. But I have not seen there being this much problem getting balls into a pig's mouth since David Cameron was at university. As soon as you started that sentence, I knew where it was going. <laughs> hey, 2024, it's the year we get topical <laughs> and political. <laughs> Little bit of politics. He does eventually find a strategy. It's not a great strategy, but it is a strategy. <laughs> and he manages 19 balls. And doesn't win a prize, but does get a hurt arm. <laughs> It does look quite painful. Like, there's, that's hard plastic. I don't, maybe it's that thing of, is it really built for a grown man <laughs> to play on that game? You know, one of the things I'm loving about this new era of under consultation is we're getting to look at new games, stuff we've never ever seen before. And on that note. Because straight out of Series 1 and Series 2 of Games Master, it's Sonic Blast, man! <laughs> We've gone back! Come back, Mason! Come back, Bruno! <laughs> Arino decides to fight the crab and he needs to get 300 tons in three punches. Cliff, how much power does a middle aged punch pack? 78 tons, supposedly. Yeah, he still demolishes a claw, which is something. He decides to look cool by taking a run up on his second punch and fs <laughs> his wrist in the process. But hey, 89 tons. <laughs> he, he proper dives it. He proper dives of it. So the last part punch is 55 tons. But up steps the new assistant director, Yoku Watanabe, who goes and literally launches herself. <laughs> She launches herself. I thought she was going to end up inside the bloody cabinet. She dives at the pad, and good on her, she gives it 73 tons. So, still not quite enough to destroy the big crab. However, good on her. But lastly, for this trip, he goes. To the reason the centre exists. Batting. Now he's done this before, back in December 2006. It didn't go well then. Will it go better now? I don't know. Oh, yeah! 
Does he not? Because he's got, like, he looks like he's in some sort of diver's costume. And he's got a big, like, corkscrew up for a, for a weapon. He's got, like, a proper, like, drill. But Cliff, shouldn't the statement actually be, doesn't Big Daddy look like Electric Tommy? So d- I think Capcom <gasps> have got a lawsuit there. Oh, we might have opened up a can of worms. It would involve Capcom acknowledging Street Fighter 2010 <laughs> properly, so it's probably never going to happen. <laughs> but I love this level. But like Electric Tommy's not there. Poor Reno, he's just getting used to the level, going, oh, what's around here? What's around here? And Electric Tommy just sort of drops on him <laughs> and just kills him. Instantly. And then what follows is one of those moments where, again, they say they're not entirely sure who the comment's aimed at or if he's talking about himself, because Arino refers to himself in the third person, saying, Ah, the chief is not skilled enough to make it in one shot. <laughs> Mate, not many people are. But I love this. I love the fact that this is just like watching a friend play a game, mm-hmm. a very persistent friend who for the most part won't rage quit. It demonstrates computer games, not just of the time, but computer games as a whole, because this thing gets a little bit bugged. He manages to find a spot in the level which the enemy can't get to. He's on like the platform above Kevin, and he can't get down to Kevin, but it does mean that Kevin can just shoot up. And it works, it's a flawless tactic. He is overjoyed, so am I. The fade in appears though, and it's on the other side of the level. And boy howdy, he makes it like within a gnat's arsehole of running out of time. Mm-hmm. But then we go on to the next level, which is this we've now gone into uh he's gone onto his second planet, so we've gone on to technically level two so 2.1 and this one literally as he goes around it it, you just need to just defeat five enemies yet again it doesn't tell you this you're expecting someone to jump into shot you know how electric tommy just sort of fell in now this one's sort of like the the level looks different however it's just you have to just kill five enemies. That's all you need to do in this level. What does him in is he kills the five enemies, the enemies being known as Apple Rabbit, and the portal appears. But just because he's killed five doesn't mean the enemies stop appearing. Mm-hmm. And he dies trying to get to the portal while more Apple Rabbits come for him. Then he completes it again and dies again. It happens twice. It's because he's trying to build up his power for the next level. He's getting greedy. <laughs> So he escapes into 2.2 and this one because we've had a side scroll but now we're going to have an up scroll and it very much reminded me of the labyrinth level in Sonic the Hedgehog 1 where you have to continuously jump until you get to the top so you must keep going higher and higher and higher um, and make sure that you don't fall off screen until you get to the top and face off against Demi Gorgon. I mean, I mean, flower heads, because it doesn't look like... What is wrong with this? I reckon there's too many fans of this game out there creating TV and computer games. That is a Demi Gorgon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, get up, get up, get up. No, this is Flowerhead, who I'm pretty sure I saw supporting Pearl Jam in the mid-90s. <laughs> what strategy does he aim for? Well, he tries to trap it, but the plot moves around too much, so that's that idea bollocks. He dies. Again. It's kind of like the bit with Forrest Gump, where he's just like, and then I did this. Again. Again. <laughs> I visited the president. Again. Again. I got killed by Flowerhead. Again. Again. <laughs> So eventually he defeats Flowerhead and goes on to the next level. And he's killed straight away by what Arino describes as a flying wristwatch. But it is in fact Turtle Eye. I didn't get originally that this was the baddie. I thought they were just like little ones that are flying in. This level gets so serious, it's time for him to take off his jacket. <laughs> you know it's got real. Literally, it says jacket off, it's got real. <laughs> but on his 30-second try, his chance finally arrives. He gets a health boost. Maybe the Chief really is lucky this year. He has one more enemy to kill to open the door. So, Cliff, what happens? He dies. What the... Chief Shear has already peaked. <laughs> it seemed like he was getting onto a right roll with this. And then it's like he's hit another block again. And I think we get this several times where he just hits these little blocks of, oh no, I can't get past this part. In fairness, this next block is essentially a giant sphincter eye lowering from the ceiling. <laughs> it's quite a block to hit. Close combat doesn't work. He needs to wait until the creature's dingleberries get longer. It gets so bad that he once again considered his long-lost love doll sim, <laughs> thinking that if he were here, this would be so much easier. Just stretch out, grab the eye and pull it out. Yipes. But don't fear, Reno, because if you hit it enough, the eye will come to you. But we're not going on to that yet because we need to go onto another segment. And that is a waste of colour! <laughs> and the chief's doing a little dance. He says he's of the Kitty Club generation, but was never actually a fan of them. Mate, your dance says otherwise. Uh, Kitty Club were an idol group in the 1980s. There were spin-off groups that came off of the main group. Those spin-off groups actually ended up recording theme music for various anime TV shows. Uh, some big idols kind of stemmed from the group. Yeah, so they were a big feature in the 1980s. You can still find lots of pictures, videos, songs, all that about them out there. But the basis of this segment is simple. They look at games not currently available on a modern system in colour and look for the diamonds in the rough that will make them think, oh, it'd be a waste not to remake this in colour. So staff writer Kibi comes in, Kibi-kun, as he is known elsewhere in the series. He had quite a collection of games. He was considered the biggest game nerd on the staff. And so he quite often would come in for these sort of segments to be the kind of Arena's own personal historian. But he comes in with his plastic bag full of Game Boy games. 
and it's time to delve into that selection, which is ever decreasing because they're going through two to three games <laughs> on every one of these sections. I didn't know this, so I thought he was going in with all 21, and until you explained it earlier, I went, ah, that explains why that bag doesn't look like it's got 21 cartridges in. It's probably got like nine in there by this yeah, point. Yeah, no, there's not many. That's why I just when they were talking about it, said he had 21 in his collection, I was a bit like, it's not 21 in that bag. That's a gimmick. <laughs> But up first out of the bag, it's Hatena's Quest, a Capcom quiz game. It's a game that Arena has played before, but on the TurboGrafx-16, the PC engine, which you'll be hearing ooh, a lot more about in a couple of weeks' time. This is the Game Boy port, released in 1990, uh, part of the Adventure Quiz series. There was a, a number of different games released across coin-op arcades and home consoles in the early to mid-90s. And essentially, it's a themed board game, mm -hmm. moving through kind of a map of the world, choosing different amounts of spaces to move and answering questions. You have a number of lives. If you lose all your lives, you're sent back to the world select screen. There are mid-bosses, there are final bosses. It's kind of a quiz board game on a console. It's quite a cool concept and is very similar now to, I guess, what we see in place of a lot of fruit machines in pubs, mm -hmm. where you just have the different trivia games and that in the corner. I've never heard of this game before, and it wasn't until it started showing the maps that I realised, oh, they're all Capcom franchises. And what was good, actually, looking at Capcom franchises, it was who created this game. Yeah. So the game was created by Shinji Mikani, who designed the Resident Evil games. Lots of the Resident Evil games. He helped create those, which was absolutely phenomenal to think that he he helped design this before. But everyone has to start somewhere, I, I suppose. And it got his foot in the door enough with Capcom to, you know, because it had some big franchises, like the, the different levels. As I said, they're all different Capcom levels. Like you had 1943, had a game synonymous with your good self with Strider on there. You've got Mega Man, which was known as Rockman. Final Fight. Um, you had Ghosts and Goblins. And then obviously bits that were sort of based around Strider as well. I think it's a really good idea for a Game Boy at that time. That's a really cool idea. And I think at least one of these games did actually get translated on the Game Boy and released in the West. Mm. But interesting to find. But Arino settles on the Final Fight theme, chooses his ball, answers the question, and the first question is a sports question. E.G. Bandu played for which team? The Dragons, the Orions, the Giants or the Tigers? Arena gets a bit of help and goes for the Dragons. Correct! Ding! Who starred in Lethal Weapon and Mad Max? Peach Melba, Mel Glyco, Mel Gibson or Mel Fender? Mel Fender. Peach Melba. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> in the cartoon The Laughing Salesman, how many moles are on Fukuza Maguru's face? One, three, five or zero. He chooses one. It's wrong. And it doesn't tell you the right answer, I guess because they figured you might come up against that question again when you played it another time. Come on, we've all had quiz games where we've done that. I think you even said you had a trivial pursuit that you literally did that as a kid, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, which female pro golfer appears in a drink for Acerola drink? It's Aoko Okamoto. 
And in the TV drama Tough Guys, who did Kuji Tamaki form a duo with? We don't know, but it's not Nenji Kobayashi. <laughs> we then get laughed at by the first boss from Final Fight saying, try again. And this is the sort of horror that the man who went on to create Resident Evil used to come up with. He truly was a sadistic bugger even back then. <laughs> but he's doing it with questions instead. And Arino's summarization is, yeah, it's nothing like Resident Evil. <laughs> but then we come on to a game that we are going to cover extensively in a fortnight's time. GB Genjin. This PC Genjin no Game Boy not even just the game, we're just going to look at the entire PC Genjin, GB Genjin, FC Genjin, Bonks Adventure, whatever you want to call them. We're going to cover the history of that mascot on our first UCP Focus episode. Very much looking forward to that. I may have given up on playing Street Fighter 2010, but I've been playing a lot of the PC Genjin, FC Genjin, GB Genjin games. They're fun. I've got it ready on my Game Boy. I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of the game, but Arino does go, oh, it's the Game Boy version of the TurboGrafx-16 game. And Kibe even says, yes, this is the Game Boy version of the PC Engine game. It's exactly the same. Except it isn't. Because slightly later in the discussion about the game, Kibe does say, well, it's the same game, but the stages are different. And the bosses are too. I'm like, mate, it's not the same game then, is it? But it's the Trigger's Broom of, of Game Boy games. It's got, it's got the it's, same sprite. That is literally it. It won't even be the same sprite. No. Because, of course, it'd be going from, you know, TurboGrafx's quite admirable colour palette to Nothing. the green scale, grey scale <laughs> of the Game Boy. But it's a side-scrolling adventure with over 20 stages and it had quite a number of sequels and spin-off games all of which we will be discussing in a couple of weeks' time. And as I said, this is a game I can't wait to sink my teeth into. However, a game that I have sunk my teeth into plenty of time, which is Donkey Kong 1994. Donkey Kong? Yes. This is Donkey Oh, what a game. What? This annoys me because with this game... It's, they say that it's it's the whole thing of, shall we make a full-colour version of this? And I may have alluded to it earlier. This was the first ever game, to my knowledge, created that it was completely adaptable, which means it's already in colour. You get custom surrounds in this game, like the Donkey Kong cabinet appears on screen instead of the standard Game Boy surround. There is specific colour information in there as well. This game is already technically in colour. Mm-hmm. It's a favourite of yours, it's a favourite of mine. I know it's a favourite of Luke's. I do look at it, though, and go, would I have loved to have seen a SNES version of this game? Oh, that would have been nice, yeah. Yeah, it, it would have been. There was meant to be an enhanced version of this game for the Game Boy Advance called Donkey Kong Plus. However, it was cancelled. But um, ultimately, it did actually emerge as a new game with similar gameplay called Mario vs. Donkey Kong, which was followed by a sequel called Mario vs. Donkey Kong 2 March of the Minis, which featured a level designer, which was one of the features originally planned for the Donkey Kong Plus version, which would only become unlocked if you accessed it through the Game Boy Player for the GameCube. So that, much like the original Donkey Kong 94, featured surrounds specifically in there for the Super Game Boy, Donkey Kong Plus would have featured content that was only unlockable 
via the GameCube Game Boy Player. This game is great. You should go and play this game however you can. It's a really fun game. We see Arino playing the game. He grabs the hammer, smacks the barrel, smacks the flames, plays through basically as much of it as he can. The whole idea is you complete the first four stages and they are your four basic Donkey Kong vanilla stages. And then we go into the expanded kind of world of Donkey Kong 94. There are new mechanics. There are handstands. There are different moves you can do. Well over 100 stages in total. It is probably the best game here, full stop out of this selection. But that's three games. Which to choose to be remade in colour? Do any of these games make a Reno think, what a waste? No. No, no. <laughs> he gives the he games just, back. No, it's fine. Yeah, he's 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 like on this time, uh, I'm in charge of this. No. <laughs> Back to Street Fighter 2010, back to suffering, back to the ceiling, but back to dying. But not just dying. He's lost over 40 lives, we're told on this. And he's been taking a little while to get to grips with it. So what he's done now is he's realised that obviously you've got the big eye in the middle and you've got some drippy elements that are coming down and sort of calcifying on the floor and creating pillars. Some dingleberries. Dingleberries, indeed. So literally what he's doing is he's hopping between the two dingleberries and he's starting to get a feel of what he should do. And he's he's doing all right until the eye, as I may have alluded to earlier, swings out and absolutely whacks him. And then he's, he's trying to take out the smaller enemies so you've got the smaller enemies and as i said this is when i realized that whenever you take out one of the smaller enemies one comes straight onto screen so they're sort of all constantly coming straight onto screen instant respawn yeah literal instant respawn and they gun for him so if you're in that far left hand corner they're reappearing from the far left hand corner you've only got a couple of seconds to deal with the eye until more comes respawning at you and eventually he just decides to change tack and he's like, right, I'm going to ignore the smaller foes and just focus on the boss. And despite almost being out of life, he wins by the slimmest of margins and just makes it to the portal. Very, very tight. But now a cutscene that says... You must go to the Dagobah system. The sand planet of Dagobah. What? Well, you know, planets are big extensive areas. They can't all be forests with Yoda in. Yeah, I was going to say sand planet. <laughs> like, what do they do? Do they get a dehumidifier in or something? It's global warming. <laughs> wow, we really are getting topical. But apparently there's a new type of power-up hidden there, a flip shield capsule... And using it will get you one step closer to realising your full power on Dagobah. Mmm, <laughs> must go! But instead of Yoda, what he finds is a blast from the past. It's Steve! 
It's a bit worrying that we're only in kind of the third realm and they're already recycling bad guys. He gets his new item and suddenly an S appears on his HUD. And it means that when he does a backflip, a shield forms by his feet, which enables him to deal damage to the enemy with his feet. And Arena wastes no time in getting back on his breaking blocks to power up further. And he dies. And he tries powering up again. And he dies. But the, the, the annoying thing is, is he starts getting used to it. And you've got the little baddies, which are these sort of jumpy, bitey prawns. They look like prawns, but they're bitey as well. And he's sort of avoiding them. And he starts to get a tactic. And he's like, oh, well, if I go up onto this one plinth up here, I can start jumping over him and then kicking him, jumping over him, kicking him. And then he kills him. But... <laughs> Two more comes straight in and he pauses the game. Three stings, Jeremy. Three stings. Sting! 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 What was wrong with the single boss system? He lets out a little, oh no. And I really feel for him. I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> so at this point, Arino looks up and Eiji Emoto is coming into shot. He looks up at him and realises that his eyes are really blurred. And he's like, this is the first time this has happened. I, I blame those passageway levels. That's what I blame for that. Eiji Emoto is not just coming in to check in on Arino, He's coming in to offer him a proposition. I will defeat two of them. If Arino can take care of the last one. Looks like we got ourselves a tag team match player. This doesn't mean that it's going to be done very quickly. Because <laughs> as you may have alluded to before, Moto's not the best at computer games either at times. Because it takes them 30 minutes. Like 30 minutes to get to the point of where Arino can take back over. Arino's chilling there with some chicken on a stick. He's literally loving it. He's just sort of sat there, getting a bit of uh, sustenance inside of him. It's been a while. He's like, oh, no, and he's commentating along with it. He's backseating gaming, Emoto. He's yeah. like, oh, you want to try that backflip kick? That's what you want to do. But at this point, they finally get there. They finally get there to the point where Reno can take back over. There's only one sting left. <laughs> and he dies. <laughs> instantly. Almost instantly. Because later on it might well be instantly. I mean, it's just like, oh no, you took half an hour to get there. So Reno dies. He sits there in silence. And then, one more time, please. So Emoto beats the second one again, and it's Arino up to bat again. We know how well batting goes for him. One health <laughs> left. Hang in there, Chief. Oh no, he dies. But it's the little cry of, all I did was hit the start button. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to blame Emoto for this one. This is down to where Emoto <laughs> paused him. it. Yeah, he left him in an impossible situation there. But their combo attempt continues. They continue to be stuck at a dead end. Arino has a dent in his fingers. He's that stressed. He's like, oh, there's a house-shaped mark on my thumb. That's what those NES Famicom pads will do to you. An hour and a half has passed since they started playing together. Absolutely mental, isn't it? 
But finally, the time has come. Two stings have been defeated. This time, Kevin has over half of his health left when the baton is passed. And Areno manages it. With one tiny smidgen of life left, Sting falls, the portal opens, and he leaps into it. Stage three, one, cleared. Oh, here we go. I cheered this. It was so joyous. I am invested, so invested in this. Um, so it was a joyous moment. However, let's come away from their pain. Let's come away from all of the anguish that they've had. Because we now go on to the review section. I, I mean, kind of retrospective of what was released in a certain time period. It's look, We're looking at April 1990, when a chunk of different games came out, including a sequel to an old favourite of the Chiefs. To kick things off, we've got Ninja Gaiden 2, The Dark Sword of Chaos. Cliff, would you believe me if I told you this game was hard as arseholes? I can imagine it is. But do you know what's horrible? Is that Ninja Gaiden, absolutely impossible games. Yeah, they have that aura about them. And... Arino turned around earlier and said about how this game reminds him of Ninja Gaiden. It's the bit that flashes up at the bottom on the side. This is going to be the game that they're going to play next episode. I was like, you get. <laughs> I recommend going and checking out that episode. It's a good one. Oh, I will definitely do so. But I was like, you horrible lot. You horrible, horrible lot. But this is the second instalment in the popular action series. The protagonist, Ryu Hayabusa, heads out to defeat the evil of all evil, Ashtar. And thanks to its apparent new shadow clone technique, which sounds like a backup technology used in IT, players can deal devastating attacks. With the Tecmo Theatre going strong, the game attracted attention with its high-quality action and dramatic scenes. Up next is a game I'm more familiar with the film that it was based on because in North America it was called Blazing Lasers, but in Japan Mm -hmm. it was called Gunhead, named after the live-action science fiction film of the same name. So is this very similar? Because this game itself, like, you've got a map and you're jumping from mech suit to mech suit and you're battling off against other people in mech suits as well. So what was the base of the movie? Did this very much tie into it? or I've not actually played the game, but the, yeah, it, it ties into the movie better than some games tie into their source movies. I mean, it was certainly, at least on the PC Engine slash TurboGrafx-16, very, very well received for the graphical appearance, the gameplay, the sound, the kind of complexity and fluidity of it. It's got a lot of weapons, it's got a lot of enemies, it moves fast, it moves smooth, it's a vertical scroller, and you could actually play it over here for quite a while because it was released on the Wii's virtual console service for a while. Oh, was it really? Yeah, uh, even then got ported over to the PlayStation Network and the Wii U's virtual console. Probably not available in any form now, though sadly but worth tracking down via whatever means you want but the whole point of the game is to collect 24 parts scattered through the land to complete a powerful robot in this simulation game it's not that much of a sim but clear the game by beating the dark squadron in the center of the map because obviously like other simulation train games or something like that you know because everyone's just walking around in a big mech suit it's no denture to go (laughs) you know Up next is a series still going today, released April 20th, 1990. It's Fire Emblem, Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light. See, Fire Emblem 
I, I've played a little bit, but they, they're they so much harder than, let's say, a Final Fantasy or any of those other turn-based RPGs out there. They are hard as nails, Fire Emblem and games. And this is the first one. This is the very first game in the Fire Emblem series. It kind of set the tone for what would come after. It began development in 1987, so it spent nearly three years in development. And despite a lackluster critical reception, it sold well over time, becoming very popular and certainly popular enough to launch the rest of the series. It would be credited with popularizing tactical role-playing games in general as a genre. It was kind of the one that broke them out into the mainstream. Amazingly, the first time it got an official localization for release outside of Japan was only three years ago, like December mm-hmm. 2020, in a commemoration of the franchise's 30th anniversary. It featured some new quality of life improvements, including fast forward and rewinding through player and enemy turns. Those sort of quality life additions are gold dust at times, as well as mm-hmm. the ability to create suspend points in the middle of gameplay. But it's an RPG with a lot of heavy fantasy in it, and also a perma kill gameplay. Once a character mm. dies, they dead. They dead it. And I think that's why I've always found it hard when I've played it on emulation. Is that it's 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 hard as nails. And as as we know with Final Fantasy, some of them did not come out in the West to begin with around this time because they felt that it was too hard for us. I think Fire Emblem, they nailed it. I think they I think they were right. <laughs> Ah, the king says still a long, long way to go until the ending. Can you believe there's still 15 minutes left of this episode? That's just of the episode we're talking about. We're already well over the two-hour mark. But with the help of Emoto, Arena clears stage 3-1, and now we're on to stage 3-2, and an opponent Arena calls Slap Happy. I called it an Ood because it looks a little bit like an Ood from Doctor Who. However, this is the mummy, a teleporting boss. And to be honest, he tries to sort of face off against it originally on the ground level. Um, But as we go into the gameplay, we notice that there's actually a top level above him. Where if you go in sort of jumping from wall to wall, you'll be able to take him out quite quickly. And actually, to be honest, once he figures this out, boom, he's gone. He defeats the Ood or the mummy pretty quickly but without that when it was on ground level it's hard i hope foreshadowing that he doesn't have to face off against this boss again on ground level (laughs) oh that'd be a terrible thing to happen but next we're on to another passageway stage which he defeats the enemies he's meant to fairly quickly but the portal is out of jumping range he can't get to it in 10 Mm. seconds he dies He actually works this out fairly quickly. The enemies aren't just to be killed, they're to be stood on. You can literally use them as floating platforms. So he jumps up onto the enemies, uses them to leap to the portal. Boom. Stage done. Stage 3-3 is here. And I'm beginning to get increasingly convinced that at least one person involved in this game was a wrestling fan. Maybe. (laughs) When did Sandman make his debut? (laughs) 
because Arena is back on Dagobah and he's facing off against Nido Sandman back on the sandy sinking boat. Sandman appears and starts spitting out snakes. You know, standard. Mm-hmm. Cliff, guess what? He, he dies. He dies. <laughs> but the thing is, he tries to sort of kill the phlegm snakes first. Phlegm snakes. They do look a bit They definitely drippy, supported they are... Pearl Jam in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so they, they sort of fly at him and he's trying to take out the snakes to begin with. But then realises even if he kills the snake, it just produces another one. So instead, he's going to use his flip shield. See, he's learning. He's learned. And Reno's learning from his mistakes before. But he uses his flip shield and takes him out and kills him pretty good. But what happens, Ash? He gets killed by the snake. Then he gets the same boat again. And what, what happens, Ash? He gets killed by the snake. I feel really sorry in the last one because it's just the snake's head. So it's like one circle of the snake and he just comes in it and he just lands just as he's about to jump through the fade-in. He's like literally centimetres away and I was like, oh no. 15 minutes later, (laughs) he manages to defeat the target a third time and this time uses some caution, dodges the snake and leaps into the portal. Next passageway is actually completed with relative ease, and then he's on to stage three, four, and he's sinking vertically down a sand water, a sandfall. I, I don't know either, I suppose. But he's falling down. It's like a reverse of the Lion King game. Instead of having to travel up, you're travelling down, and he does actually. To be honest, he's facing off against multiple of these worms, but now they're red, so they've joined the wolf pack as well, and. He's literally just coming down and he's realised if he just fires up, he seems to be getting them and he seems to get into a good run of this. But he wins. Yet, guess what, Ash? It's another one of those ones where you have to defeat a certain amount of enemies and even once you've beaten them, it doesn't mean they piss off. They're still there and they're still getting up in his business and they kill him just as he gets to the portal, these sander worms, which just look somewhere between Tremors and June. And it's at this so point we de- get a perfect Arena line. <laughs> when you've come this far, even your disappointing play are something to behold. Well, they start talking about a disappointing play proficiency test, which I never did my bike- bicycle posi- proficiency test, let alone a disappointing play position- uh, proficiency Yeah, I can't even say it. <laughs> <laughs> Proficiency test. Gods, can't get my tongue around that one. <laughs> so you've spent two hours reaching the boss. Please give us your disappointing play. Fall into a pit right before the boss or something. 25 lives later, he does it again, but this time manages <laughs> to hit the portal before the worm gets to him. Just. <laughs> Stage 3 Stage 3-5 and this guy looks like he means business and we're maybe still on Dagobah. It's a combo bad guy as we have a sander worm from the last stage and a brand new green guy. Arena thinks the tactic is to defeat the worm straight away. This makes it one-on-one but his power and reach is too weak so mm-hmm. his shots won't reach the bad guy. Whenever he gets close enough to make an impact he takes like life-threatening damage almost immediately. Really heavy hits because what this this green guy's doing it doesn't give a name to this green guy so i've named him trevor for some reason but what trevor's doing he's sort of riding the snakes in 
and he's trying to figure out and, and he turns around in his frustration in a proper arena line and says this job is sent to my daughter through university <laughs> but finally patience patience being the greatest weapon the chief holds it pays off he defeats the boss everyone applauds and arena says <laughs> I've done it. It sent my daughter into society. <laughs> We're at level 4-1 and soon after starting, he discovers a new item. It's the back option, a barrier that can deal damage. All he has to do is beat a bunch of guys on screen. The enemy is Froggle and five of them must be defeated to basically get the portal. And to be honest, he smashes this. There's a really uneven difficulty curve on this yeah. game. Yeah. So he smashes through another passageway. He ends up straight into 4.2. And immediately he's getting fish spat at him on a four side scroller that bobs up and down. Uh, Arena tries to push the screen, but it results in more damage and death. And the screen just eventually stops before then moving back the way it came and then changing direction again. It's kind of a slowly weaving backwards and forwards auto scroller. The, the motion is really quite bizarre and unusual because the roof's coming down as well and yeah. he gets hit by the roof several times do you know what it reminded me of the motion of it though it was like Super Mario Brothers 3 when you get the floating fortresses yeah yeah it's yeah it's yeah. got that feel to it that floaty feel and he gets as I said he gets taken up by that ceiling way too many times Arena comments that it's pretty slow for a fourth scroller but despite it being slow he fails to make any real progress but then Arena-san oh hi yeah, news from the staff. Time flies. It's past half eleven. Yeah, and Suda... Oh, he's been going on twelve hours. Over twelve hours. And Suda is on staff today. Yuchiro Suda, who... who was a video engineer and who horrified people during the Super Mario World episode when he tried cleaning the cartridge contacts with a metal instrument. And everyone was like, oh, God, no. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> but he is very, very good with hooking up gaming systems to televisions and working with video production. But because he's on mm. staff today, clocks are ticking. He wants to go home. This will have to be his last continue. Five more lives to complete the challenge or it will end. Jeopardy. We've got Jeopardy in the episode. <laughs> but we face off now against this new baddie, so he gets to the point of where he gets to the Guardian, and it's a one called Sea Cobra, which, yeah, again, sounds like a wrestling name. Uh, sea Cobra, who is nothing like a cobra. He sort of comes in like a comet. So he comes in like a comet and then sort of appears and then at attacks. And he, he gets taken out by him several times. He is a hard boss. He's coming in at all different angles. However, with three lives remaining, he takes him out and goes through to the last passageway. Where he immediately dies. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> over and over again because we face off against the mummy as I may have foreshadowed earlier unfortunately there is no way to climb up and he has to face off against this teleporting boss because he just electro attacks teleports away electro attacks teleports away it is a hard boss 
and he's in that passageway level and it's game over. And he looks defeated because he even says that he was gutted to go out on a passageway level. やっぱり信頼って大事ですね。ギブアップです。そう、イズアースト、コンティニューオーギブアップ。トラストイズアンポータントシング。アレーナギブアップ。トータルランニングタイム。イズアクチュアンドトゥ12アワーズ。11アワ
I was like, come on, come on. When especially that one where we had the three stings and uh, we they finally defeated them. That was a fist bump moment for me. This is an enjoyable TV show to watch. And it's one that I can see being very easy to binge. I've got history with this show. And for the life of me, I cannot remember why I stopped watching it. I think I had quite a collection of episodes and then a hard drive died. Mm. And I think that's what just, I just didn't build them back up at that point. And I can't remember why maybe the place that I'd have got them from wasn't available. I don't know. But now I'm back, you know, obviously I've got a lot of different shows to watch, both for the rest of the episodes for January and moving forward into February, March and April. But I'm definitely going to start keeping Game Center CX episodes on rotation, particularly for commutes. Because an hour-long episode is going to be great to have on my phone, half there, Mm -hmm. half the way back. Easy times, great times. Hopefully providing some inspiration for games that uh, we may cover later, we may play on Twitch, we may do other things with. Because there are some games there, like even Street Fighter 2010. I know I've played it before this point in our timeline. I couldn't remember anything about it. I don't think I was any better at it back the last time I played. It was wonderful to become reacquainted with the Chief, with the world of Game Center CX, with the presentation, with everything that goes on. And I can't wait to come back. But that will wrap it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening, for joining us on our new voyage into the world of video game television. If you could be so kind as to like, rate, review, subscribe, it would really help us reach audiences that may not have been interested in Games Master, but may be interested in what we're covering right now. Speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter or X, depending if you want to be that person, at underconsolepod or Instagram and threads at under.console. You can also join us over on our Discord channel for real-time conversations with both us and as well as other listeners to the show and fans of retro gaming and retro everything. So come on board on that. Indeed. At all levels, you get UCP Extra, where we cover period-appropriate bonus content. This month, it's Thomas and Friends. As well as Under Console Nation, our monthly community podcast. At the £5 level, you get the episodes early, uncensored, and always ad-free. And at the £10 level, you get all of that, and you get to be part of our monthly Golden Joystick Waggler Waffle Calls, which will then be made available later for all £10 and £5 backers to go back and listen to. And in addition to all that and any other extras we may throw in along the way, you also get listed here alongside these fine folks. Andrew Greenwood, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chrissy Toosticks, David Palmer, Gordon Aiken, Gordon Brantz, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Mangagirl, I.M. Cheadle, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Link Campbell, Mark A., Matty Boo, Misha Summer, Nick Lebrecht, Reese Wynn, Sean Dunn, Selena Bien, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, Tom Dylan McEvoy, Tom S. Wilsey and Xanderthal. And that is all for this show. We shall see you patrons in a week's time for a little bit of Thomas the Tank Engine. And for everyone else, we will see you for more of Bonk in a couple weeks' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. <laughs>